Well, if you have a Bible this morning, feel free to open up to Philippians chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible of your own, there's a pew Bible there in front of you. There's also some copies, of there's some blue paperback copies on the way out. Feel free to grab one of those and write your name in it. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. If you have no idea where Philippians is, that's okay. Feel free to use the table of contents. What you'll do is you'll get into the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, keep going to the right. Then you'll see Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. If you see Colossians, you've gone too far, we'll be in in Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. What we've been doing is we've been using the hymn of the Father's Love Begotten as kind of the framework for our Advent series this year. And this morning we're looking at the little phrase, all dominions bow before him and extol our God and King. And hopefully you've picked up along the way our hymns and that song of preparation focusing on this King, the one who's going to come. I don't know if if any of y'all are familiar with kind of the, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, all of the, you know, comic book movies, you know, you've got the Hulk and you've got Marvel, you've got DC, those kind of two universes that are moving and working. I looked up the other day, and this is not counting the most recent Marvel movie, The Eternals, that came out, but the Marvel Cinematic Universe up until this this point in time has grossed over 23 billion, with a B, dollars. When you think about those movies and that set of movies, the DC comic movies, they've also, you know, done quite well in and of their own right. And uh, Stokes and I were actually watching the, the DC movie Shazam the other day. You may have, have seen that movie before. A really, really interesting uh, movie where you have this kind of evil that's on the rise, kind of this personified seven deadly sins in one person. And this unlikely hero, this boy named Billy, kind of gets chosen by, you know, this wizard. And he is Im- imbued with all of the powers of the wizard's name is Shazam. So every time he mentions the wizard's name Shazam, he transforms from a little kid into this big superhero. And he's trying to kind of figure out these these new skills that he has, and they do all these funny tests. And along the way, you have this evil one who's lurking, and he's growing more powerful. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to wipe out Shazam before he reaches his full potential. Uh, And so you, you just see this kind of clash between good and evil there in the movie. And and you think about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you think about these DC comics, you think about just movies in general, stories that we love. How many stories do you know and love follow kind of a basic plot line? The basic plot line is the world's not the way it's supposed to be. Something's wrong, something's amiss, there's evil at work, and it's on the move. But... You know, you think about it it might be a wicked witch, it might be Sauron, it might be an alien, it might be this guy from Shazam, you know, it might be Scar, it might be Darth Vader, it might be uh, Dr. Evil in the Austin Powers movies, it might be Lord Voldemort. I mean, you think about, there's always a bad guy, and he's at work. And and it looks like for a season as if the evil side is going to win. But a hero or a king returns and almost always, usually in the book, through an act of self-sacrifice, he rescues his people. Think about characters like, you know, Aragorn or Simba or King Arthur or Iron Man or Harry Potter or even Buddy the Elf. We think about what he's done. There, why, you think, why are these stories always the ones that grip us so tightly? 
Why, why is it that these movies and these books that follow that kind of plot line, why are they the things that grab onto our hearts so tightly? They're the ones that we spend our money on, we spend our time watching them. We know that they're myths and fairy tales. We know that they're not true. Although if Thor was real, he'd be really cool to meet. You think, we know that they're not true. We know that these are myths. But in another sense, when we read these stories, it's interesting because in another sense, they're among the most truest things we know. You think, maybe we love them because the world really is under this deep spell of evil and instinctively we know it. Instinctively we know when we look around the world around us, we go, things are not the way they're supposed to be. This is not right. We instinctively know this, and so we're drawn to these stories where we have this, maybe we love these stories because we have a deep ache for a hero who will come and rescue us. Maybe we love fantasy and fairy tales because written into the fabric of our world is a longing for the true story, the true king, the one that our heart yearns for. And so we get just like a little glimpse of that when we go and see these movies or read these books, and we think... We just long for that and lean into it. Maybe Christianity, as C.S. Lewis suggests, isn't just a myth, but, quote, a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference in that it really happened, end quote. And for the past three weeks, we've been taking phrases from this Advent hymn of the Father's love begotten, and we've been using them to study theologically the incarnation and why it matters. And last week, we talked about Jesus as this, quote, long-expected Redeemer, the one promised in the Old Testament. We looked at Mary's Magnificat, and we've looked at Colossians 1, where he is the, you know, the image of the invisible God and the, the, the co-eternal member of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. And we looked at the birth narrative where he first revealed his sacred face and how this king came. And we looked at this song of preparation where you know, we behold the word become flesh and dwelling among us. Last week we looked at Mary's Magnificat where she sings, My soul magnifies the Lord and I rejoice in God my Savior. This morning what we're going to look at is we're going to look at the kingship of Christ because Christianity revolves around the manger, the cross, and the crown. The manger, the cross, and the crown of Christ. And Christ was born to set his people from the power and curse of sin. And where do we see that? In the manger. He was born to do that, to rescue us. How did he set his people free from the power and curse of their sin? Through the cross. And again, we've said, you don't get the cross if you don't have the manger. They all hang together. This morning, we're going to turn our attention to the crown. Theologically, this is called the exaltation of Christ. His ascension, his sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and his coming again to judge the world. And this morning, as we look at Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 5 through 11. Our main focus is going to be on verses 9, 10, and 11, but we're going to read starting at verse 5. I want you to see if you can pick up on the link between the manger, the cross, and the crown this morning. Think about those three things, the manger, the cross, and the crown. See if you can pick up on those as we read this text. So with that in our mind, let's go to Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. May we receive it by faith. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, 
And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. I'm grateful for that, and I hope you are as well. Let's pray and ask the Spirit's help this morning. Please pray with me. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that you have not left us alone to figure this out. You've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You've revealed yourself through your Son. Lord, we pray that you would please be with us this morning as we look to your word. Please re-describe reality to us again as we're so quick to forget it, and help us to glory in not only the manger, not only the cross, but also the crown of Christ. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Now remember this time of year, we've talked about this before, the watching world looks at Christmas and all that we kind of gather around and mocks our belief in a Savior who was born an infant to a poor family and later grew up to be beaten, mocked, and killed. They look at what we believe and what we kind of rally around this time of year and they ask the question like, is this it? Is this all you have? They want to root for the guy who wins, not the apparent loser. They see suffering and evil in the world, and then they say, well, where is your king? Where is he now? What about all this bad stuff that happens in the world? Where's your king? Does he even exist? Now, these four words that you're about to hear are either your greatest hope or they are your greatest peril. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is either your greatest hope or that is your greatest peril. Either way. Whether you believe it or not, Jesus Christ is Lord. And what you do with those four words changes everything. And at some point, every human heart will grapple with this truth. There is no middle ground. Either he's the king and he's Lord or he's not. And if he is, then we trust in him. There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality. Here's what Tim Keller said again in his helpful little book, Hidden Christmas. He asked the question, quote, where's the true king? That question is the most disturbing question possible to a human heart, since we want at all costs to remain on the throne of our own lives. We may use religion to stay on that throne, trying to put God in the position of having to do our bidding because we're so righteous, rather than serving him unconditionally. Or we may flee from religion, become atheists, and loudly claim that there is no God. Either way, we are expressing our natural hostility to the lordship of the true king, end quote. So he says we have different responses to this idea of Jesus being the king. And so the big question this morning that we're going to think about, if you're a note-taking type of person, we're going to ask the question, why should we put our trust in King Jesus? Why should we put our trust in King Jesus? Or another way, why is the crown so important? Here's our three points this morning. These correspond to the three important things that God the Father gave His Son. We put our trust in King Jesus, number one, because He alone has been given the highest place. Secondly, He's been given the highest name. Thirdly, He's been given the highest authority. Those are the three things we're going to look at that are kind of found in this text. So let's look at that first point. King Jesus has been given the highest place. Look at verse 9, the first little bit of verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. A rule of thumb in in Paul's writing is when you see the word therefore, you want to ask what? What's it there for? As Paul writes, you know, in light of what I've just said, he typically builds his case based on previous information. That's why people love to like read the the writings of Paul, especially Romans, because he just goes, therefore, and then I'm going to talk about that. Now, therefore, in light of what I just said, I'm going to build on top of that. And so again, you have a, a therefore here. Paul's typical pattern with using therefore is, here is the gospel, therefore, this is how you should live or respond. Here's the truth, here's how you respond. So we've talked about how the indicative drives the imperative. A statement of what is true drives then how you are to respond to it. And we get in big trouble when we flip those. So we love, we're called to love, why? Because he first loved us. That is what is true, and this is how we respond. And so uniquely in this verse, the word therefore connects the Father's response to what Christ did on the cross and the love that propelled him there. Paul is calling the church to humility and unity in the gospel, but also to submit themselves to the lordship of Christ. And in verses 5 through 8, Paul builds the case for Christ's kingship by showing how the eternal Son came in flesh at his birth, humbled himself, and was obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we've already seen that you have, remember we said the manger, the cross, and the crown. What you see is you see the manger and you see the cross. Now in verse 9, we get a peek behind the curtain to see the heavenly results of this redemptive work. Here's what Sinclair Ferguson said, quote, Paul is saying, if you look at what Christ has done for us, the only logical response is that Christ must be exalted. The Father exalts the Son because this is what He promised to do, end quote. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. This is what God the Father has promised to do. John chapter 10, verses 17 to 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it up from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. It's Jesus talking about the authority that he's been given. Now, all of this was part of God's plan of redemption for his people. And the Greek word that Paul uses here that's translated highly exalted, so you say, you know, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him. That little Greek word translated highly exalted is found nowhere else in the New Testament. It's a very unique word. It's huper upso, highly exalted, super exalted. It's like the superlative of exalted. So like we see, holy, 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 the highest. This is, he has been super exalted, highly exalted, the total superlative of that. There's no place higher. It's in a class all by itself. Christ is super exalted. Paul takes us from the heights of heaven in verse 6 to the lowly manger in verse 7 to Christ's death on the cross in verse 8, and now we're back up at the throne of heaven in verse 9. It's like a V. We go from the heights of heaven to the tomb. Now we're back up again. And so what we see here is that Jesus has been given uh, in our first point, which I forgot because <laughs> my brain's shot. Jesus has been given the highest place. Yes. Now he's been given the highest name. That's our second point. Throughout the Bible, Jesus is known by many names. You might be able to think of a few. Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Ancient of Days, The Word, The Light, The Great Shepherd, Emmanuel. Many names of God that we see, many names of Jesus. 
So what is the name mentioned in Philippians 2? Verse 11 calls Jesus Lord. The Greek word is kurios, which is used in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint to represent Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. That is my name, my glory, I give to no other. Yahweh is the name that surpasses all other names. Here's what the ESV Study Bible said about this verse. He said, while Christ bears the divine name, he is still worshipped by his human name, Jesus, since it was in the flesh that he most clearly displayed his divine glory to the world. Now, this new place and this new name does not mean that somehow Jesus was not already truly God and not a member of the eternal trinity prior to his exaltation. And this is to be understood as referring to a position of recognizable superiority over all of creation. Theologically, this is a change in official glory, not essential glory. It doesn't change who he actually is in and of himself. Here's what Sinclair Ferguson said. He can say it better than I. Quote, The wonder of the incarnation is that Christ took on humanity without abandoning his, his deity. The wonder of the exaltation is that he displays his deity without abandoning his humanity. End quote. Thanks, Sinclair. That was better. Now you might be thinking, okay, Dave, thanks for the theology lesson. Who cares? Why should I care? Fair enough. But I want you to see as, as Paul builds his case, we have to understand the importance of the place and the name before we get to the application. We have to understand who Jesus is, his name that is above all names, that he has been given this highest place and this highest name. Because now in point three, we're cruising right along. Point three in verses 10 and 11, King Jesus has been given the highest authority. Uh-oh, here comes the dreaded A word, authority. But you have to understand the application is coming out of this we have to understand who Jesus is. He's been given the highest place, the highest name. So because of that, because he is who he is, he also has the highest authority. And this is how it plays out in our life. This is where the rubber hits the road. And here's again what Tim Keller said. Quote, When you come to Christ, you must drop your conditions. You have to give up the right to say, I'll obey you if, I will do this if, as soon as you say, I will obey you if, that is not obedience at all. You're saying, you're my advisor, not my Lord. I'll be happy to take your recommendations. I might even do some of them. No, if you want Jesus with you, you have to give up the right to self-determination. Self-denial is an act of rebellion against our late modern culture of self-assertion. But this is what we are called to do, nothing less, end quote. Now, this is where this passage gets really hard because, as the hymn states, we are called to extol our God and King evermore and evermore. We're reminded, even when we looked at, we've been looking at this exposition of the Ten Commandments, God will not share the throne with anything or anyone. You shall have no other gods before me. But we instinctively know and we feel. Even if you don't really know how to like describe it, there's this tension in your heart. That there are these two kingdoms that are always at war in your heart. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. 
The kingdom of God, whether you believe it or not, you were made in God's image. And you have this kind of sense of the divine that's kind of in you. And you realize that there's got to be something else. There's got to be something more. You have this kingdom of God, this conscience that you have, and the kingdom of self, which is I want what I want when I want it. And these two things are at war in your heart. There's a constant fight and struggle. But the thing that we need to remember, and the thing that we are reminded of here in Philippians 2, with this just highly exalted description of who Christ is, is that there is no room for the kingdom of self in the kingdom of God. There's one throne. There's no room for the kingdom of self in the kingdom of God. Notice which, which knees and which tongues will bow and confess that Christ is Lord. Which one? Which ones? Every one of them, right? Notice which knees and which tongues will oppose this confession. Who will oppose it and say, that, oh, that's not right? No one. <laughs> every, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every one of them. Simply put, what this means is that we're not in charge. Now, that is both simultaneously super offensive and super comforting all at the same time. Because then we go, what do you mean I'm not in charge? What do you mean I'm not in charge? Let's just all admit it. We all have a control idol. I do, you do, we all do. We all like to be in control and we all know the absolute chaos that breaks out in our own hearts and in the relationships around us when we feel like we have lost control for five seconds. It's this kingdom of self. Yet, you think about all the struggle that we have within our hearts. We're not in charge. That's super offensive. But isn't it good to know that there is someone who is in charge? Even before his ascension, Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Here's what Kent Hughes said, Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth refers to every, every rational being in the universe. In heaven signifies angelic beings. On earth designates earthly inhabitants, human beings. And under the earth refers to dead human beings and fallen spirits. No knee in the universe is excluded, be it human, angelic, or demonic. This means that some will bow with spontaneous ecstasy and others with grudging mourning and shame. Every knee will bow. This is the future hope of Christians. Living, dead, martyred, oppressed, whatever. Christ will return as their victorious king and righteous judge. And again, we have said all along, the crown of Christmas reminds us, the message of Christmas with the crown in the middle of it reminds us of what? Fear not. Why? Because your king has come and he will come again. And we hope in the Lord. Life may look like an absolute train wreck right now. It might look like the bad guy in those movies who have come in and run roughshod over your world. And do you know what the message of Christmas tells you? Fear not. Why? Because you're not in control. And that's amazing. Christ sits on the throne and he's coming again to judge the world again in glory. And we rest in that and say, yes, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. This is also, I mean, this is the future hope. This is the present hope that we can have. This is our future hope. This is the reason why we get up in the morning. 
When you think about this, it's, while it's the future hope of Christians, it is the future dread of those who mock God, both the living and the dead. Christ will return as the victorious king and righteous judge. And the crown of Christmas calls those who mock to repent and seek the Lord while he may be found. And I, as a minister of the gospel, make that call to you today. Do you know Christ Jesus Christ is Lord. That is either the blessed hope that you have, or it is the dread unimaginable. And I, as a minister of the gospel, in Christ's name, call you to repent. And I call you to flee to Christ and trust in Him as Lord. He is the Lord. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. He is the sovereign of the universe. And he has promised to return. And you think, that is such pie in the sky, Dave. Okay, fair enough on that objection. But remember, this just doesn't happen in a vacuum. All of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ, right? God has been faithful to his word. There is nobody doubts that there was a a kid named Jesus who was born. The real question is, was he the son of God? And I have to remind you again, when you read the scriptures, this happened in real space and time. Jesus was born in real space and time. He lived in real space and time. He died on a cross in real space and time. He went into the tomb in real space and time. And he was resurrected in glory in real space and time. And the eyewitness accounts for that are unassailable. It actually happened. And he was the promised one. So the promised Redeemer. Page and a half in the Bible, humanity messes it up. There's a Redeemer who's going to come. And He actually came. So, if all of that has happened and God has been faithful to His promises up until that time, why in the world do you think He will not continue to be faithful to His promise when He said, I am going to come again in glory? He's already done all of this. He's going to do it again. And so this morning, I am pleading with you Get off the throne of your own life. You are not a good king or queen. You need Jesus. And he is coming again in glory to judge the world. For those of us who trust Christ, we go, Yes, Lord Jesus, come, please. I know that the world is not right. You look around, you feel like something's out of joint. This is broken. You go, man, this this can't be it. This can't be it. Is this the best that we have? And if you are here and you, and you do not know Christ, this is as good as it gets. But if you are here and you trust Christ as your Savior, you know instinctively that there's something better coming. And we lean into it by faith. And that helps us make sense of the brokenness and the shame and the sorrow and the anger and the bitterness that we feel in this life. It gives us hope in the midst of it. Because again, the message of Christmas is not... You go do it yourself and you be a good little boy and girl. That's not the message of Christmas. The message of Christmas is fear not. Fear not. Your king has come. And he's good. And he's coming back again in glory. And who is this king? Who is this one? The one who's been given the highest place and the highest name. And he's been given the highest authority. So we, as Christians, we do not get to say, Jesus, I don't want to obey you in this way because I'm just kind of not feeling it. We bow the knee to King Jesus and we say, Lord, you're in charge. You're in charge and I trust you, O Lord. I trust you. 
Do you want some application? Almost done. You want some application? James 4.10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. A church united in humility before the Lord and united in humility with each other is a healthy church because its focus is on Christ and His kingdom, not itself. We're not here to just perpetuate ourselves. We're not here to just do that. We're here to exalt Christ in all that He is. We point to Jesus. Instead of crying, me first, the gospel frees us to say, no, after you. Because we don't have to be so obsessed with building our own little kingdoms. We can rest in God's kingdom and rest in the finished work of Christ regardless of our present circumstances. It might look like just an absolute train wreck that is in your backyard and in your heart. But yet we trust Christ. We trust Christ. We lean into Him. We press into Him. And as we draw closer and closer to Christmas Day, we need to keep our hearts fixed upon the hope and reality of the incarnation of Christ. It is a true and lasting hope. There's always hope. There's always hope in Christ. Isn't that good news? Always. In humility, Christ Jesus came into the world as an infant born under the law to graciously redeem His people from under the curse of that law. That is the hope of the manger. Jesus, this Word, became flesh and dwelt among us, and He came like a little baby to come and to rescue and redeem us, to live the life that we never could live, a righteous life, and to die the death that we deserved because of our sin, so that we could be a recipient of what we do not deserve, which is His grace and mercy and forgiveness. In love, Jesus became a curse for us and died so that we could graciously have eternal life. That's the message of the cross. And in heaven, He sat down at the right hand of the Father and graciously promised to return again to fully rescue and redeem His people. That is the hope of the crown. You see, the manger, the cross, and the crown, they all hang together. The historical reality of the manger and the cross reminds us that the gospel's real. It's real. All of it's true. As C.S. Lewis said, you know, it is the true myth. It's the thing that we lean into and we say, yes! It's the most true thing we know because we're made in His image. We, we feel that God-shaped hole in our hearts and we long to have it filled. As Augustine said, Lord, You have made us for Yourself and our hearts are restless until, they find, until we find our rest in You. That's it. There's no other rest at the heart level apart from Christ. He is the only one that can fill that deep longing in your heart that you instinctively just want filled. And you're trying to fill it with anything else. Anything else you try to fill it, be it money, be it relationships, be it grades, be whatever it is. Whatever you're trying to fill that hole with apart from Christ is only going to demand more. And Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you what? Rest. I will give you rest at the heart level for all that he's done. The historical reality of the manger and the cross and the crown remind us that the gospel's real and the historical reality of that crown as we consider the kingship of Christ reminds us that hope is always on the horizon. It's always right there. And we say, come Lord Jesus. And so what's our response? What's our response? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. That's our response. We have joy. We have hope. Because we have a King. And His name is Jesus. And He's coming again. 
Fear not, little flock. Fear not. Your king loves you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for words like this inspired, that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write down so that we could remember and we could proclaim that you have received the highest place. You've received the highest name. You have the highest authority. And Lord, we pray as we consider your kingship that we would repent of all the ways that we're trying to be our own little mini-sovereign. Lord, we are terrible at it. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to lean into you. Help us to find hope and joy regardless of the circumstances because we know that you sit on the throne and you're coming again. Lord, as we feel the just instinctiveness in our hearts that things are not the way they should be, that this world is broken, Lord, help us to be um, just people that lean in and trust you regardless of the circumstances. You're always good. And Lord, there is always hope on the horizon. It's always there. And we're grateful that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. And so it is through his precious name that we come to you and we offer our prayer. Amen.